0: I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Anatomy of an Artist. We are almost at the end of season one, and my guest this week is the band Kurungbin. The name, while hard to pronounce, was chosen long before they were selling out multiple nights at the Greek Theater, Radio City Music Hall, etc. I was so excited to be able to catch up with the band about the success of their album Mordecai, which they released in quarantine, and how that's translated and transcended them from a cult niche project and catapulted them into the mainstream. We got to talk about how they feel as though they've reached a point of success and can now focus solely on the music. In the last year and a half, obviously, so much has changed. Do you feel as though the overall trajectory of where you thought you were going has shifted along with that? And has it kind of gained you any new perspectives?
1: definitely changed um you know for us specifically as a band we put out a record over covid and you know and there were questions from you know our team of whether or not that was the right move um because in traditional campaigns you put out a record and you tour the record
0: alongside
1: it while it's happening because that's kind of the way it's been done and the way that success has been proven Um, But we didn't have the luxury of touring and we were very much a touring band um, prior to COVID. So we decided to put out the record anyway uh, because the world needs music no matter what state you're in, no matter if you can campaign it traditionally or not. Um, And it was a challenge for us because we weren't together. And it was a challenge to not be on the road because it's really hard to experience what, you know, fans or listeners are feeling um, without being there. And all you have is loads of time to read Mm -hmm. the Internet and to, you know, read what the Internet says. And then what's happened so weirdly is that now we're about to go on tour and the shows are so much bigger than we thought they would be. Um, and that is really weird and warped and the perspective is totally wonky because we really didn't know where we stood last year um, with the world. And, and, you know, even as a band, there was a lot, there were a lot of challenges presented from us not being in the same physical space. We, You know, there was a challenge five years ago when we started touring, being together all the time and losing our personal lives um because we were with the band and and then last year was kind of the opposite so i'm going to start there and i'll let the guys add anywhere they want
2: i mean you kind of nailed it for me you know we uh went into lockdown a certain level of band and we are slowly coming out of lockdown on a different uh plane or level You know, it's uh, it's really disorienting and very surreal. I mean, the whole thing from the get has been kind of surreal. Uh, The, you know, measure of success that we've had with this thing. Um, And it's unusual for me. You know, this is not what I anticipated happening. Um, I'm not mad at it at all, but it is surreal and it is weird. And I never really wanted to be uh, quote unquote famous. You know, which explains a lot of the uh, stage um, choices. Well, that and I guess
0: I'll aim this at, at you, DJ, but also to everyone. When you were younger, did you have an idea of success um, and or a vision for yourself and, and a benchmark that like you would hit and feel like, OK, then I am good?
3: I think um In my head, growing up, I thought success was, you know, I'm speaking from like a child's perspective, but being on TV, uh, winning awards, you know, all the stuff that typically comes along with being a successful person. And as I've grown, I realized that um, success can mean a lot of things in a lot of different ways. Um, And to me now, my definition of success is that you eventually do what you intended to do, and if that intention mm-hmm. is there and you made it, then that's that's success. Or if you intended and started off doing something and you exceeded it, it's also successful, um, and that happens on different levels. Um, I think a lot of times, especially. Because we have so many analytics in in music now, we're able to look at so many numbers and see who's listening, where they're listening from, how many times they listened, what time of day they listened. Um, you can get really uh, caught up in that, and it can affect your artistry to a point to where if the numbers aren't looking like other people's numbers, you can begin to question: Should I be doing this, or am I good enough? And that's just really not what success is at the end of the day. It's not about numbers. It's about, you know, did you do what you intended to do? Did you hit your mark? And once you hit your mark, then you set a new goal and you reach for the next mark.
0: Well, and that's what I love about your guys project, especially is it feels like almost, and and this kind of speaks to what Marco said, the antithesis of where the culture of popular music has gone, which is extremely algorithmic, loud, like we had the loudness wars, we have truncated songs to essentially satisfy, you know, more streams and more plays of the same song. And and what I love about you guys is it feels wholly original and it also feels intentional. And so growing up in the Houston music scene, do you think That shaped how you formed the band? And what were you aiming for a specific formula and a specific sound when you began, or did that happen naturally just because of your eclectic music tastes?
2: I think the only formula that we were really going for was to be simple. You know, um, I didn't want to have to use a bunch of loopers or like a laptop on stage or like a bunch of like extra stuff to, you know, do the music that we wanted to do. I didn't want to depend so much on like technology. Um, there's a couple of things that I, that I got to use that I really like. And I was like, well, this will just be, you know, my, um, my fingerprint on this. So like, I'm going to use this wall pedal. I'm going to leave it on. I'm not going to turn it off because I just want to keep it simple, you know, uh, I'm going to use a shit ton of reverb because it's just three of us and I'm going to fill up the space and I really like, um, you know, space a lot. And it was kind of it. <laughs> you know, break beats, dubby melodic bass lines and spacey guitar melodies. And that was kind of it. That was the formula. We also knew we wanted to pull from, you know, other places. I definitely didn't want to play, you know, Texas blues. I wanted to avoid that
0: That wholeheartedly uh, for you guys.
1: (laughs) I was thinking about, you know, kind of what you were asking earlier about like what your dreams were as a kid, what success was as a kid. And I know for me, like I had world books and I just thought that success meant if you were in the world book, you did something, which were like inventors, artists you know, all sorts of people. It wasn't any one <laughs> genre, but it was like if you did something good enough to be left behind, like you left something behind that was worthy of being written about, um, then it means you did something really unique, really, because if you're in those kind of books, you did something original. And I think originality is something I find really important. And it's really hard to find. Um, because the truth is the m- most original you can be is you. Because every one person is original in their own specific, unique, you know, formulated way, but it's really hard to find. Them. And uh, I, you know, Kronkun my first band, and I got really lucky. But I hung around bands before Kronkun started. And the the thing, every single time, any friend would start a music project, they would say the type of music project it was going to be. It's like oh I'm gonna start a stoner metal band with a twist of this in it you know and it was like they set out to sound like a specific thing and actually you know we didn't um there was no like you know we want to be any genre and the guys were really amazing to me in those early days because I was just starting to play bass so it was actually really easy for me to be original because I didn't know what I was Doing. And I wasn't, when I was learning how to play bass, it wasn't like I had sheet music where I was learning how to play a specific type of music. I literally was just playing bass to someone playing drums. And whatever came out was just what I figured out. And then they, you know, crafted, helped craft the music around me. And I think that it's like whatever happens, happens. To me. And the music tells you what it wants. Um, And it seems silly or like woo-woo to say that. I feel like it might sound like a cop-out, but it's not actually. You put a pen to a paper and you just tell the pen to go wherever it wants to go. It will go somewhere.
0: Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think that there's a lot of creative freedom. Maybe when you start playing an instrument, for instance, like I don't play guitar, but when I write on guitar because of my, you know, My limited capacity on that instrument, it it forces you to think a different way. And so, if you kind of joined the band when you were early to playing bass, that perspective must have shaped how you play and how you hear things in a different way. And so, I think sometimes you can unlock a lot of, I don't know, new ideas, right? Because you don't have old ideas ingrained and old habits ingrained in your brain. But as you guys are kind of in Houston, starting an instrumental, um, kind of more (laughs) experimental project, did you see, I'm going to use the word commercial in air quotes, a commercial trajectory for that within the music industry? Was there some sort of plan or intention to turn that in from a more of a hobby into a legitimate kind of career that could sustain you for the rest of your life
3: no not at all i didn't know uh, i definitely didn't see or couldn't imagine what eventually happened with krongman um just from the jump i mean the name that was chosen krongman that's not a name you would choose if you want to have sustainability because no one can pronounce that they can barely spell it it's uh you know, it was just totally like, hey, this is a good word, let's use this one. Um but but no, um it's actually very surprising to all three of us that it's having somewhat of a um commercial appeal. Um lately.
2: Literally commercials. <laughs> <I> <laughs>
3: <laughs> like
1: actual exactly.
2: commercials, yeah.
1: I always believed and I always pushed. And I'm a I'm a workhorse and I'm administrative mm-hmm. workforce and have had a lot of jobs on that side of the world. And I know how to project manage and um, time manage and stuff like that. And, and I'd gone on a tour before, right before I started in. Um, and I saw what tour looked like. And I saw what tour management looked like. And I saw how bad musicians are at doing that. <laughs> because <Ahoy>. that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not generally where you know the skills lay and I was like well I could do that side like I know mm-hmm. how to organize stuff and I knew I could push that and the, the name while crazy was also sort of foresight that the internet was going to be insane and it's really hard to find a website or a name that is totally unique because, you know, it's like, you're the cars or something. Like good luck with that band name. And so actually, Crum for for all of the difficulties in saying and spelling, you know, you type K-H-R in Google and it comes up. Uh, and yeah, and like, right before I moved to London, we recorded all the songs we had and we took one photo together and i took that cd and that photo and and ran with it as far as i could in london until we got a publishing deal and a record deal and all that stuff
0: you know even before we had I think that what you just said is so apt to it's usually the skill set of you know musicians doesn't lie in administrative work or tour managing but when those skills do align, it does put the artist in a, more of a position of power to like grow a project and essentially gain a leverage while kind of diving into management deals, label deals, publishing deals, et cetera. And especially you guys coming from being such a tour, heavy band, I guess, were you touring and grinding pre-record deal pre-recognition because i know you've been a band for 10 years
2: i mean we played uh, a handful of shows in houston one of the things that we wanted early on was to have merch at our very first show i was like what's the point of playing a show unless you have you know something and i you know my goal since i was a teenager was to be on you know wax was to be on a record like. That was just like basically if that's all that happens, cool, happy. That's fine. I just wanted to be in a, on a piece of wax. Uh and so we pressed, you know, records, um, really uh DIY kind of situation. We designed everything ourselves. A buddy of mine helped me like get impressed. Um, and so we had records and we had t-shirts and we had some stickers the very first show, and it was kind of we just thought it was gonna be that one show, and that's fine. Um but you know, we kind of did our thing. We wrote some songs, played some played some shows. Like Laura Lee said, we recorded everything onto a CD. She moved to London, um, and then things started to pick up in a really weird way. And it was like, um, you know, Bonobo put one of our songs on his Late Night Tales compilation, and it just kind of took was off. Was that
0: the specific moment where you felt like there was a shift in the project's trajectory? Or I guess, was there another where, was it the signing of the record deal? Like, was there some sort of practice moment where you felt, okay, this feels like it is taking wings beyond what you guys were doing?
2: Um, I think the first catalyst is definitely Bonobo putting it on that comp.
1: I mean, that was the first of anything that happened, really. Um, Yeah. And, and it was on, it was on that CD. <laughs> it was on the CD that I took to London and I had been playing the music for people and I'd been getting good feedback. So I felt good about it. And I obviously felt good about what we made, but then, yeah, I saw Simon Bonobo in London gave him the CD and a couple weeks later, you know, got the email about going on that. And, and that was the catalyst in the record deal because it was on late night tales and, Late Night Tales that saw that that particular song on his comp had been played way more times than most of the other songs. And so he offered us a record deal. And at that point, we're, we were offered like three other record deals. And I met with different people. And But it was like there was something happening. There was that many people interested in this one song yeah. <laughs> of a band that had no other information. Um, it meant something.
3: Yeah, for me, I think um, the, I guess the taking wings moment happened later in 2016. Um, March 15th was the day to be exact, the Ides of March. Um, We happened to be here in New York at the time. And March 15th, our manager just quit her job to like kind of go in with us full time. Um, Randomly. We ended up at a bar, like slash restaurant in Manhattan called The Ides. Weird. Hmm. Um, but yeah, we ended up there. We got a call that our um, one of our songs, the number four, had just gotten a sync placement with Corona. And, and that money was used to support this tour that we were about to go on that we really had no money to do. Uh, but we were going to Europe to support Father John Misty on um, going around he was doing over there. And that was kind of the day that, I mean, there were just signs everywhere. We were like, you know, we actually met our agents. They're still our agents to this day. We met them that day as well. So there were just signs everywhere that day that, you know, something was happening.
1: Yeah. And it was our first show in new york ever you know it was one of our first shows ever but it was our first show in new york and it sold out i'm sure it was a small show but it's a big deal
0: (laughs) well i think that the first sold out show in in like you know any kind of major market that's outside of your hometown at least for me it's like it feels like Legitimacy in the sense where you can see people's reaction and you don't know them, right? They're not your friends, they're not your family, right? There are there are people who genuinely love what you do, and especially in a city like New York or L.A. where people pride themselves on not giving a shit about anything, right? (laughs) So it's it's even that much more of a compliment. But I want to shift really quick to your guys' creative process right? Because there's obviously three of you. And I know that you kind of retreat to a barn somewhere in rural Texas, uh, where the recording process happens. But pre-recording, how do you guys juggle the writing? Or are you writing in person?
3: I guess I'll take this one. (laughs) Uh, No, we write separately. Um, It's a, I think it's a, it's just the way we kind of all like to dig in on our own and work things out. Sometimes it's easier to just figure things out when there's no one around. You can make all the mistakes you want. You can try things. It's kind of an open, just a blank canvas uh, with no judgment. Um, and we put all those ideas together where Loralee sends just base ideas over to market. And he'll kind of chop them up and say, oh, this part's really good. This part's really good. Piece it all together. Then we learn that. Then we go into the barn and we play that arrangement, which in, it really saves time. Because once we get into the actual recording process, we're playing an arrangement and we're not spending a lot of time, more or less trying to figure things out. Um, it gives us a good starting point. From that point, we can um, just kind of do like small minutia type stuff. I like
0: that. I feel like that's efficient. And also I think sometimes when you're in a studio and there's a forced pressure to like create and write, you can get things that feel contrived and you can hear the pressure. And so giving yourself exactly. like the space to create separately and then showing up in the studio with like a skeleton that you just have to dress up and I don't know, figure out how to, gel in I and the process of recording your live show are you looking to do a direct representation of those recordings? are you trying to expand and rearrange them as you continue to play them live like do you view them as living and breathing creations?
1: They're hundred percent their own living and breathing creation um, you know. Obviously, some sound more like the record than others. But the record is meant to listen to, you know, either in your own time or with other people. But it's, you know, a record is the forever thing. that you, know, you can put on and it's going to sound exactly that way. And you can do particular studio things that you can't do live. And vice versa. So it's like you want to play to the strength of the record when you're recording and play to the strength of a live set live. Um, you know, we're currently in the process of rehearsing and figuring out these songs live. And it's a, you know, it's a new process and it's a beautiful process, but you kind of have to figure out how to translate something that sounded great on a record to an equally great, but potentially different arrangement that will evolve every single
0: show. Do you guys try and not one-up each other, like on stage, but I guess your guys' relationship on stage? Is it that, you know, one day, Laura, you'll try something new and kind of see Marco's reaction, and one day Marco will try something new and gauge that reaction? Like, is it that kind of live experimentation, or do you guys feel like you're doing the experimentation while rehearsing and then, you know, kind of trying to play what you created? I
1: think it varies you know, if there's one person that is going to experiment on stage, it would be Mark. Um, I'm somebody who like, I just really like to be prepared. It's my mm-hmm. comfort zone. So I will rarely try things on stage different unless I'm really feeling the spirit and that way, but Mark will push us. And, and sometimes he fakes <laughs> me <and> DJ out.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's, um, Yeah, from night to night, when we play, especially when we're on a tour and we're getting to play night after night, there are certain things that happen throughout that process that you hear each other play these songs so much that any one little thing that changes is like a really Mm -hmm. big deal. Um, And it may not be noticeable to the audience that night in whatever city we're in, but um, if something changes because it's been you know, more or less the same thing for the last 10 shows. And I know I've switched something up and, you know, Mark and Laura turned around and was like, oh, that was, that was cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then you take those moments and you're like, okay, if that was cool, then let's take that and build on it. And maybe we can insert that. And it just keeps growing from little moments like that.
1: Yeah. I will secretly or not to secretly admit that, Uh, tour in 2019 i was watching rupaul's drag race all the time for inspo Mm -hmm. just like presenting yourself on stage with so much like tenacity and sometimes mark and i would be (laughs) playing and i would kind of imagine that he and i were like in a lip sync battle and he's Mm -hmm. gonna you know experiment musically and things but then i would (laughs) sort of counter it by just kind of like smizing (laughs)
2: As much as I could. What's a smize?
0: <laughs> I don't know. It's like a Tyra Banks thing. It's an intense stare that looks good in a photograph.
3: Ah, uh, okay. I thought it was like smiling with your eyes. Sm- smizing. Yeah.
0: So yeah. What, I- what is your guys' approach to collaboration? Obviously, you have internal collaboration. But now, obviously, you worked with Leon Bridges. And so... How do you approach that? Is the idea to have control on your guys' end, or are you kind of bringing an artist in and really inserting their perspective into your project for that moment?
2: Generally, what we like to do is—I mean, I suppose for just so Leon as a as a great example. Um, I really love his work. I just also just really like Leon as a person. I think he's a wonderful friendly, sweet person. <laughs> um, and what ended up happening is, you know, we went on tour with him and we just kind of got along. And that's kind of where it started it, you know, everyone's like, oh, who do you want to collaborate with? Who you want to collaborate with like, I mean, I don't want to collaborate with anybody that I don't connect with like on a personal level, you know, because that's kind of pointless. Like just, yeah. Get us in a room and see what happens. Like what's going to happen is we're not going to talk to each other. and all that kind of stuff so what what was great is uh going on a tour with leon um and kind of like getting an idea about what he liked and what he wanted to do and we just kind of wrote a tune that we thought might you know that he might be able to do something with so we sent it over to him and he sent it back to us uh in like a couple hours with you know words and lyrics attached to it um and it was like oh okay this is really really cool Let's work on this, you know. So we go into the studio. Um, let's, you know, build this track with Leon, and then it was like, oh, well, we have to figure out, you know, if this is going to be the A side of a record, we got to figure out the B side of the record. You know, I always think about releases as A and B side because I'm trying to think of a physical medium. You know, like yeah, streaming, cool, blah blah blah, but whatever, I don't really care about that. I'm trying to put out physical medium. Um, so. On the B side, we decided to come up with something. And that was really, really, it was actually better than the first one we did. Oh, dang, okay. Well, maybe we should make more of these. So we ended up making more songs. And then we had like a four song thing. And it was like, oh, well, why don't we just turn this dude into a record? You know, and then, like started writing more songs. It's like, um, it was very organic and it was really a lot of fun. And what ended up happening is Leon had these tunes that he hadn't put out yet um so he would one day he just like sat down and with a kooch guitar and started singing and steve had a mic up and recorded him, and then we took those pieces back and did the same thing we always do with crewman so you know take the pieces cut them up rearrange them build music underneath them and then learn the arrangement and then we'd come back in and cut it uh and that's pretty much how that happened and i mean, I love the result of of how that came about. It was, just, it was just like really kind of organic and like really natural. There wasn't a whole lot of forcing it.
0: I love that, and I also love how the collaborator kind of becomes like a fourth appendage into your already established creative process. It's just like great. You kind of fit in. You do your part, and then we will build our parts around your part. It feels very natural. But you just said something interesting. And it makes me curious. So you guys are obviously, and you said it before, feel as though and definitely just are kind of transitioning from, I, oh God, if we have to, I hate defining shit, but cult niche, right? Right. You guys have like obviously very successful in what you do transitioning into a more commercial stroke mainstream visibility. Do you guys feel any of that pressure when creating to grow, to be uh, to lean into that to be commercially viable. Are you rejecting that wholly and saying we're going to do whatever the fuck we want to do regardless, or is it a mix of both?
1: Yeah, it's family rejection of that stuff. You know, we before we recorded Mordecai around that time, the three of us potentially even holding hands or something, but we we were in a circle and we kind of said we do not need to get any bigger. You know, none of us feel the desire to be any bigger than we are. It's, it's, We're good. And it will naturally grow because that's what happens. Everybody plays it for their friends or Mm. you hear it somewhere and there will be a natural growth if we're not trying. So let's not try. (laughs) But I'd say that it's more about working towards, you know, what our biggest fans reaction is going to be rather than the unknown person that listens to mm. more commercial music
2: yeah i mean i'm not really so interested in getting a new audience like trying to force them to be into what we do if you like what we do you'll probably find it and you'll probably know who we are already you know um and i don't know i just uh, i don't really like um like the music industry i'm kind of not into that you know I mean, I know that sounds crazy to me and, uh, but I'm just not into it. Um, I don't, I, I came up like really enjoying weirdo music in like the nineties. And it seemed like, like record companies were putting out some weird shit. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. You know? And then they kind of stopped putting out weird shit and it all became kind of like very, okay, here you go. Um, it's just really kind of uninspiring to me. So I don't really fuck with it. Um, I I seek out, um, you know, un- unusual music. <laughs> That's what I like to listen to.
1: I like a lot of, you know, big bands, you know, like the Beatles and Radiohead, who are giant bands, but they're all very themselves. Um, and I usually listen to both of those bands Mm -hmm. records before we go into a studio album recording because i like the way their records play from start to finish find it really inspiring but every time i listen to those records they do weird shit all over the place including the beatles and they become this standard this is what like rock pop is but it is that because they were just who they were and you know, you go listen to Sergeant Peppers and there are barn animal sounds on the record, you know, in like in plenty. (laughs) And I seriously doubt like if you went to a record label with a song with a bunch of barn animal sounds that they would think that that was commercially viable, but it was. And I feel like if, you know, I don't know, we just want to be successful as us who we are and people seem to like it and if they like what we do and that makes us commercial or mainstream i'm okay with that i'm just not okay with trying to be what people want me
2: to be yeah i'm not trying to chase it i really don't want to do that i just want to make music that i want to make music that makes my friends happy That makes me happy and that's kind of it
0: that makes a lot of sense and i think that I'm an independent artist intentionally but I make pop music right and so it's this idea I think in, in building a career that if I'm going to compromise something it's like selling your soul to the devil in a way right you better guarantee me all of that and when s- signing no one could give me any sort of reasoning why I would compromise artistry in order to be successful Right. And so this idea is similar to what Laura said. It's like you maintain your integrity, the people who love you gravitate towards you. But at the end of the day, regardless of the trajectory of your guy's success, you get to sleep at night knowing that you make music that you love and that your friends love and hopefully the friends of your friends also love. And then you're kind of building out from there, which is, I think, why we make music. Right. It's not to satiate the fucking algorithm which I feel like is brutal at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, because, so sure, if you are true to yourself and you make music and nobody listens to it, you are going to experience some sadness from that, you know, and mm-hmm. I get that. And But where, to me, where it's really scary and dangerous is if you make something that you mm-hmm. don't like, and everybody likes like that, mm-hmm. you are going to be in trouble for a, a long time in your head because then that's basically saying you are mm-hmm. better not as yourself. You know, like that's <laughs> kind of what it means coming back at you. And that's, the, you know, the scariest place for me.
0: I feel like it's bad on both ends too, though, right? Because like you said, you make something and someone else likes yeah. it. And then you feel like, oh, they, like you said, they like a version of me that's not actually me. Yeah. But then you make something that you don't like and people don't like it. And it's this idea that like, what? did I sacrifice my integrity for, right? Like, okay, cool. That was for nothing. And so this is just a broader philosophical question that I get curious about how different artists interact based on, you know, what music they make, Mm -hmm. what sect of the music industry they interact with, because it's so different for so many different artists. But kind of gathering from what you guys have said, is there a sense personally that you've made it, right? And that, you know, kind of going to your earlier definitions and just pondering of like childhood success, like DJ said, it was to do what you were meant to do. Like, are you able to internalize that at this moment? Or is there still this idea of like, but we're pushing forward, we're striving, et cetera?
1: I'm good. I mean, I want to keep creating, but that's just because if you have that bug as an artist or a creator in any way, then you just want to keep making things and see what different things you come up with. But you know, in terms of success, I'm I'm I feel incredibly successful. You know, not just because people listen to our records, but also because we have a band that's lasted. For 10 years and is not going anywhere and we've built a team around us of incredible people who have our back until the end of time that support what we do um, and we have a catalog of songs that i love plus come to a show you know and and feel that energy
2: my measure of success here is like by making it it's just i'm able to make a living doing what i like to do it's kind of it. I just want to be able to pay my rent and eat good food. And that's it. I'm very, very the simple. The good food
0: is necessary.
1: Deej, how do you feel?
3: Um, yeah, <laughs> I, feel, I feel that we've, I feel we're successful. Um, but at the same time, it's like, um, for me, it's kind of that boxer mentality. Of, uh, I can't remember who said it, but there was a famous boxer that said, it's hard to get up and train at four o'clock in the morning when you're sleeping on satin sheets. Hmm. So there's like a level of, um, somehow there's always, to me, I try to keep a level of uh, discomfort in what I'm doing to make sure that I'm not getting too comfortable, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because I always want to strive and keep growing and, and keep doing stuff like, Like, for instance, like, I play organ at church, and um, right before we came out here, I had to play a funeral, and I played on organ, and I'm used to, you know, everything being great. I get on this organ, and two of the bass pedals are out, the F sharp and the G. You know, you don't really know how important they are until you don't have them to work with. So I had to, like, find a workaround to try to figure out, like, okay, how do I... uh, get through playing without, you know, the necessary tools I need to play. So I had to find work around. But that in itself is just, you know, not being comfortable all the time because sometimes eventually you're gonna get thrown into an uncomfortable situation and you gotta be ready to to handle it. You know, everything's not always perfect. So but yeah, as far as success wise, I'm I'm very happy with where we are. Um to echo what was said earlier, I don't think we need to get any bigger I don't want to be famous I love the ability to walk down the street and you know kind of roll and do what I want to do yeah I think so well
0: to build off that I would love to know a the meaning behind the wigs but also the balance of like the desire for anonymity but also the necessity to be public facing and open about yourselves um, and, and how you guys navigate that. Because obviously, Marco and Laura, you guys are in wigs, but DJ, you see, like, you are kind of yourself, but granted, you're behind a drum set. So maybe that is a wig in itself, if that makes sense.
3: <laughs> uh, for, me, for me, like, I honestly don't ever even, maybe it's my terrible memory. But I don't remember that conversation starting off. I believe that everyone just showed up and it's like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm going to do. And 10 years later, here we are, just how you start is how you finish. Um, But, but yeah, that was, um, that wasn't really a, for me anyway, it wasn't really a conscious thing. I wasn't, um, I know for Mark and Laura, they, when we started, um, I know Mark had been in a few bands and you know, like being on the scene, you don't want to come out with this new thing that you're trying to do and everyone's looking at you with preconceived notions about who they think you are. So in that sense, you want to kind of, you know, hide your identity to where you're receiving whatever we're doing with an open ear because you're not you're not like, oh, that's the guy from, you know those four other bands. I know what he sounds like, or you know, whatever. Um, I wasn't really on the scene like that, so I was a fresh face anyway. So, you know, they were probably looking at me like, who's the black guy? You know, I didn't
1: And we definitely didn't we definitely didn't start the first show wearing wigs because we thought we were gonna be so big that we'd want to (laughs) hide ourselves. No.
2: It was literally just to it was literally just to break preconceived notions. That's all it was. I wanted to look like um, like I was in Ursin, which is like this Turkish, like psych band from like the seventies. That was my goal. Mm. I want to look like that, but wear like, you know, a, uh, like a Texas suit, you know what I mean? Uh, and that was kind of my basic, basically my look. <laughs> like, I like all the freaking, like, I-, I like all the freaking, like, you know, psych metal dudes looks from like the 70s like that's the shit to me and i was like well this will work really really well even if we're not actually playing metal
1: you know yeah i yeah mark wanted that that site look and i wanted to like counter it with a very clean graphic wig (laughs) and like polished (laughs) outfits you know Um, Mm -hmm. and and you know i don't know if really like planned out for our visual looks to reflect our music but somehow it did and still does in that way because it's a combination of different things that work together well well i love
0: that and i mean visually all of your guys photos photo shoots artwork etc is also polished and i love like i saw i forget what shoot it was but like dj and the fur coat and sunglasses and like everybody is so kind of it it is that glam but it is kind of just like dripping in a bit of I don't know sex in the best kind of way like that kind of 70s we're a little high it's 4 a.m sloppy but in a phenomenal way that's supposed to be a compliment no
1: I I take it as a
0: compliment
2: I'll take it as a compliment thank you I am absolutely never high yeah. on stage or at a photo shoot though. That is not happening.
3: Yeah, my <laughs> my um <laughs> and and also like the the photo shoots thing. I'm such a um, a regular plain jane guy. Like in my everyday, like I guess I kind of hide in plain sight because I'm not very flashy. I don't like anything that draws attention to myself. Um and then I go out and do those photo shoots with the big fur coat and glasses or whatever and then it's just this outlandish thing that happens it also helps off the stage because if you're looking for me you may be looking for a guy walking around in a fur coat Mm -hmm. but you know that's not i
1: i can be flashy both on and off so i've had to learn how to separate those two selves so that you know she's not recognized which she is not um I told the guys today, I like, went into the co- coffee shop this morning and White Gloves was playing and I just like took it as a good omen so to play our player for a show. It's like, I was like, hey, that's my band. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay.
2: <laughs> Before you receive uh, angry messages from any of your listeners, that is a faux fur coat. Faux fur. Let's just let oh, you be very, very, very clear.
0: clear. Well, how much of... What you guys are putting out into the world is, um, I'm going to use the word persona, is a persona and how much of your kind of day-to-day selves are you inserting and is that is that different from the music perspective to the visual perspective or are you kind of utilizing the project to, I don't know, be, be a more grandiose version of yourselves?
1: Uh, I think when it comes to our sonic decisions musically, that's ourselves. Um, The stage is the persona. Yeah. For me, I don't know if you guys feel that way, but That's that's how I feel. And when you were talking about the glam rock thing, which it is, um, I like, I love glam rock. And I really like it because it's like an expression bigger than you when you're out there. And it's almost a way of hiding, you know, you're you're, you're protecting your private side. But the, you know, to me, when we're in the studio and we're in the barn, you know, no one is around and we are as down and
2: dirty
3: ourselves as we can be. Um, yeah, I agree hundred percent with uh, what Laura said. Like the sound is a hundred percent. Like on, from my from my perspective, it's a hundred percent me. I had, uh, before the band started, I grew up playing drums uh, when I was a kid. I started when I was four years old and I stopped playing because in Houston, there's just so many really, really amazing drummers. And I don't think that my style of drumming was conducive to what was going on at the time. Um, so I was like, you know what, let me play some other instruments, you know, so I can work. And um, the stuff that I was working on at home in my private time and my private practice on drums is a lot of the same stuff that I play in Krungbin, but they didn't have a place at the time back in, you know, 2008, 2009. but. Um, Croman started. start it's like okay i get to play all this stuff that i've been working on at home in private and um so i would say that's very much so like the version of myself that that is me
0: i love that and honestly i keep kind of referencing the ideas of success that you guys have thrown out that feels like such an ideal balance it's like creatively you get to be fully yourself because that's obviously the most intimate part of that, right? It's like you give everything to it, but then on the persona side, you get to kind of protect yourselves in a way where you, you know, some things are sacred and you get to keep those things sacred. And I guess I'm curious, I'm gonna ask this and then you know, I'll kind of we can start wrapping up. Do you think that the lack of vocals allows you, Right, because I'm an artist who sings, and so everything is always so intimately detailed in, I mean, poetic, but sometimes literal ways. Right, so there's no really escaping that intimacy, um, and discomfort. Which fuck it, I lean into it because why not? Um, but the lack of the lack of vocals and or just how you mix the vocals within your mixes. Um, do you think that allows you? As a, another level of freedom
2: I'm going for mystery. Um, I like music that is either in a language I can't understand or the vocals have been performed in a way where they're so you know uh, exaggerated or whatever that it becomes another sound or it's tucked in the mix so I have to like really really listen to figure out what they're saying on one level and then if I'm actually have the lyrics in front of me, I want them to be uh so poetic that i that they could be up to many different interpretations like i like that that to me makes that music be able to be interpreted by a bunch of different people in a lot of different ways um and so that in that way it can like transcend a lot of different you know imaginary boundaries um so yeah i love uh, not singing <laughs> so if we're going to sing I, I i prefer it be you know kind of obfuscated as it were um Mystery is great, and I'm trying to push always in that direction.
0: So I guess to wrap, first of all, thank you guys so much for doing this. You guys, This is like the second to last episode of this season, which has been a massive experiment for me. And so being able, you guys are phenomenal. And honestly, the fact that this record came out last year and you have all of these sold out shows, I think is really inspiring to a lot of artists that you can do whatever you want so long as you're willing to work hard and fully en- encapsulate your vision um, and i think that's not the narrative that artists are fed in the current music industry
2: i firmly believe that there is a niche for basically every genre subgenre, or weirdo thing you want to do If you're making something, there is somebody out there with ears that wants to hear it. And that's kind of what it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you guys are just doing that extremely well. So congratulations. So you you guys are about to go back on tour after essentially like a year and a half in isolation. I guess, how are you feeling about that? And how are you planning on kind of taking care of yourselves and prioritizing yourselves and has your perspective on your time on the road and how you're going to handle that changed after having, you know, a rare, long period of time off from that.
1: We look after each other, um, which really helps me, especially because I have a tendency to fall into working too much. Um, And it was even like last week, I did it again. I like fell right back into the trap of working too many hours in the day. But but we caught it quickly, I think, because we've had the time to make sure we're gonna stay healthy and look out for each other. But we check in and I think the check-ins really help. Because you can, you know, I can meticulously plan for myself to make sure that I have two hours of self care in the morning and an hour at night or whatever. But It really helps to have accountability with people that you care about and care about you. Um, And we put we put some guidelines in place for touring in terms of like how many days we're out, how much we can do when we're out there.
0: Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.